The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, creatives, cuisine, authors, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Russia basically was excommunicated from modernity. The sanctions that were imposed on Russia, the financial system is going bankrupt overnight. It's been cut off not just from McDonald's and Cokes and Pepsis. Those things are not as important. Most importantly, it's been cut off from U.S. technology. Amid the fog of war, we try to explore the thinking behind Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Do the most suffocating sanctions even matter if a billionaire strongman is hellbent and feels he has nothing to lose? Russian economy be damned. China, Saudi Arabia, NATO, how will they move in this historic rebalancing of power? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. A shout-out to our broadcast partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and much of Washington, D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Holler if you, too, would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from Denver is Vitaly Katzenelson. He is CEO and Chief Investment Officer, formerly of IMA. He's a known value investor, author of The Little Book of Sideways Markets. You've seen his byline in the Financial Times, in Bloomberg, at MarketWatch, but he does not want to talk about markets today. Vitaly was born in Russia, and his columns on Contrarian Edge, his heartfelt columns since the invasion of Ukraine, have been, I guess, getting to his confusion and heartbreak, and frankly, the devastation as a person who has Belarusian blood, Ukrainian blood, as he was born in Russia, to see kind of Russia self-immolate like this. Uh, welcome to the show again. Robin, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Vitaly, I have to ask you, you know, you were very outspoken about saying that, I guess, if you, you tried to game what was in Putin's mind as a rational person, that it's just not something you could have seen him do. One, invade, and two, kind of relentlessly shell Ukraine the way he has been over the last several weeks. Robin, well, you're absolutely right. I actually, I was, I had zero doubt that there will be no war. And now, when I think about why I had no doubt, for several reasons. Number one, when I was growing up in a Soviet Russia, we hated Nazis. Okay, when uh, World War II, like in Russia, World War II was one of the most important events that happened in in a 20th century. Uh, more than 20 million Russian people died. And when I, say, when I say Russians, I mean Soviet people you know, from different republics died. Yes. And uh, since I was going to school, I always thought that Russia is a peaceful country and Germany, you know, a Nazi Germany invaded Russia and killed all those people. And in my mind, I could never imagine that Russia could behave like this. That's point number one. Point number two, what is important to understand, I always catch myself referring to people who live in Russia, in Ukraine, and Belarus as Russians. And that's not because I'm some kind of 
you know, you know, chauvinistic Russian person. It's just when I was growing up in Russia, we had a, we all had a very similar culture. Like we watched the same movies, read the same books, spoke the same language. Yes, Ukrainians had, they all, in addition to that, they had their own culture, their own language, and so did Belarusians. But we had this such a great overlap in culture that we basically treat each other as we were brothers. I have a, still have a lot of friends from Soviet Union, and they're from Ukraine and from other Soviet republics. And honest to God, I don't even know what republics they're from because culturally we are so much alike. So, and that's another reason why I could not imagine this war because that is as close as you can get to a civil war in, you know, in basically in Russia. Because like, if you look at Ukrainians and Russians, you put them next to each other, you could not tell the difference. Number one. Number two, a lot of Russians actually moved mm. to Ukraine and, and vice versa. So that was a that was the second reason. That's why I could not you know see the war coming. Let, let me understand this, Vitaly. Um, I I know you don't want to get into the investing angle on it. I could just for everybody out there listening. Vitaly is a fascinating case study in that when we first had you on the show several years ago, you discussed kind of the way you were indoctrinated in Soviet Russia to think that everything in the United States was bizarre, that we were out to mm -hmm. get you. And when you came here, it was very mundane. It was this journey from. Uh, uh, a kind of a, a Soviet-era full-blooded communist, if you will, to mm -hmm. an inveterate capitalist. You are a value investor as, as a day job. You go to value investing conferences. You hold forth on macroeconomics, on poverty, on income inequality and everything. You've made the full turn to the United States. You've raised your family in the United States. I, too, thought that Russia, for all of its dictatorial leanings in the late 90s and, and, and the past 20 years under Putin, had espoused the kind of the grand bargain. After all, they were part of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, the four pillars of emerging marketdom. You had Moscow was now one of the most expensive cities in the world to visit. There was money visiting London, the islands, Miami. Oil had gone from $9 under Boris Yeltsin a barrel to the commodities boom of, of what? We saw $140 oil, and we might be visiting that again. There was so much for them to lose. Put nuclear retaliation aside, that I too several weeks ago would have thought, no, wh why, why do this? So when I left Russia in 1991, I was living in a country that it was evolving from kind of a socialist, communist country towards a democracy, and then in 2000, when Putin took over, it was still a democracy, but over time, Putin for asked for a little bit more power. And Russian people give it to him. And this point, let me stress this point. My father told me once that Russian people are skeptical of the government, but they love their leaders. They love them to death. So the problem is uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So Putin, when he came to power, I'm sure he was a you know, kind of uh, democratically leaning leader. No, how, then, how do you say that, though? Everybody talks about the KGB and secret police past his time in in East Germany, and certainly we've seen all of these bizarre executions and poisonings abroad. I mean, I understand that he extra expropriated power little by little, but he also had the famous quote that it was this devastating moment, the fall of the Soviet Union, that maybe revanchism was in his blood. Well, maybe, but my point is the first few years as he, when he was a president, nothing changed. It was still a democracy. And then he started little by little consolidating power, and he would every single time... He asked for a little bit more power. I remember one time he asked for 
instead of having a president being a, you know a presidential term has been four years to extend him to six. And then he changed the law a little bit more. So now when the instead of Russians speaking their local leaders on the province level, they would pick him, you know, then uh, the governors would be appointed from the top. So again, Russians did this. And so little by little, Russia went from being a democracy to the point where it became a dictatorial country. And here's the problem. When you give power little by little, then at some point, the dictator does not even have to worry about laws, does not even have to ask for power. He just takes it. And when I was looking, when I was looking at Russia, like when I was analyzing if there could be war between Russia and Ukraine, I was trying to analyze Russia, but what I really should have been analyzing Putin, which is a very like, which is what Putin wants, but not necessarily what's good for the country. And uh, Putin, like one thing I realized about dictators, dictators want two things: they want power, and they want they want sustained power, and they want more power. And I think this is how I look at Putin today. This war is basically Putin grabbing more power. Vitaly, what do you think Vladimir Putin is worth in 2022? You know what I. Take a crack I, I, at it. I, I, well, I think I've seen numbers that yeah, you know, they're close to you know, five hundred billion dollars. I, I, no I mean, uh, whether it's twenty billion or a hundred billion or five hundred billion, and yeah. however much of it is secreted away, and I don't know Luxembourg or condo towers in South Florida, you would think again this this kind of touches the value investing side of your life, the uh, ownership shareholder democracy side of your life. You'd think that however corrupt it is, and that he's emboldened the oligarchs over the last quarter century, that he is invested in that. That as you see, all of these companies pull out, all these multinationals pull out of Russia in a very kind of whiplashing fashion, Coca-Cola, Apple, you know, the credit card companies, the SWIFT, the banking system, the airlines pulling out of it, that that pain is going to be felt by him and his cronies. So when uh, Putin invaded Crimea, when he, you know, basically the next Crimea, when he invaded uh, Eastern Ukraine before, the West basically looked at it and did nothing. And I think this has emboldened Putin to start this war. And Putin did not expect this kind of reaction. I think you know th- what I'm telling you now is kind of becomes a kind of a, a common line. But basically today, Putin you know thought this war is going to be over in three days, and Putin also thought you know, did not expect that the West is going to react the way it has. And what I will say he did not expect, that he's almost going to become like a toxic call on the ESG checklist for the world, right? Like now, if you're Coca-Cola and you have business in Russia, it's actually can damage your reputation. So Explain that why- for our listeners. So if he's a toxic mark on ESG investing, ESG yeah. investing is what? Um, it's a basically, I, I actually forget what the increments are stand for, but it's something that has to do with environmentally friendly business you know so, so socially words, conscious socially conscious investing so in the past you. they say you have tobacco you have weapons whoop you have exposure to russia uh yes. that is now a knock on a portfolio manager or anybody looking to get business that it's he's toxic yes so like let me give you a real example i personally in our portfolio is view on tobacco stocks for instance some clients tell us please don't own it for these reasons because we have relatives who died from it whatever so for them we don't buy it now I actually had a client emailing me yesterday about one of the companies we own. He thought this company did not pull out out of Russia, you know, and he says, "How can you own this company that you know hasn't pulled out sure. out of Russia?" Well, that was not the case, but that's now like if you're a large, large pension fund and you own companies that do business in Russia, it's basically they become toxic to you 
And actually, these companies have a reputational risk. So McDonald's has a 800 plus stores in Russia, but they have, I don't know, close to 40,000 stores around the world. So those 800 stores would basically poison the rest of their portfolio. So therefore, that's why McDonald's says, well, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to, you know, on one side, it's a loss to McDonald's, but it's a small loss, right? It's, you know, it's a, you know, a few percentage of profits. But if they don't pull out of Russia, then their reputation will be damaged and the impact will be felt on all 40,000 stores that they have or whatever that number is. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Vitaly Katzen-Nelson. He brands himself as a student of life, although he's also the severely known in value investing communities. I mean, the people that kind of chip off the old Warren Buffett uh, looking for you know growth at a reasonable price or reasonable prices where other people are not investing. But his heart has been broken as a Russian-born naturalized citizen now in the United States, but as a person who has Ukrainian blood, Belarusian blood, that he doesn't understand how this happened. He doesn't understand how Russia went from being in kind of the most favored nation trading status league within two weeks to being an international pariah. There was one line, Vitaly, that really struck me in your first of three essays so far on this. And you explain how, for you, writing is both therapeutic and it's it's like bleeding. Uh, you can't understand this and you have to spill over into pounding out your thoughts, free association, whatever it is, and get it to people out there so you can kind of synthesize what you're thinking. But there's that anecdote of, you, you remember visiting the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and you heard that story about a group of Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union who, whilst their way to Japan during World War II, and of course you explained that Japan and Germany were in the same axis, but Japan was not genocidal towards Jews the way the Germans were, that just kind of wanted to purge the entire human race of Jews. Share that anecdote with me, if you will, and how uh, you, you you thought of it when you were thinking about Ukrainians, Russians, Belarusians. Yeah, no, I, Robin, thank you. Um, yeah, this story really st- stuck with me when after I heard it because so imagine you have during World War II, you have this group of Jewish refugees finally arrived to Japan, and Germans found out about it and they asked Japanese to send these Jews back, you know, basically t- uh, to Germany. And Japanese were really puzzled about this. And uh, they came to this group of Jews and then and, and talked to the rabbi who was the, you know, the head, you know, who, were, you know, who was in charge. And they asked him, why do Germans hate you so much? Why do Germans hate you so much? Yes. And, uh, that, and now, Robin, just imagine this. You're a rabbi. You have family and friends there. And whatever you're going to answer is going to basically, your answer is going to, decide you're going to live or die. That's it. That's the answer right there. So he thought about it for a second and maybe for a little bit longer and said, you know what? They hate us because we look like you. And that was enough for Japanese not to send them back. And I think this, uh, the reason I kind of remember this quote, you know, this story, because it's very, like, uh, we are very tribal. It is a lot, it's more, it's more, it's easier for us to fight somebody from outside our tribe. And it's a lot more difficult for us to fight somebody inside our tribe. And because Ukrainians and Russians are so much alike, and they they basically kind of belong to the same tribe, I felt that this that this is another reason why I felt this war is unlikely to happen. Because how can you go? How could Russian people possibly go and start killing their brothers and sisters, and you know that who look just like them? And that's, you know, that's why this story kind of came to me. And, uh, and, but, but also I think this is why there was, the, if you look over the last 20 years, there were a lot of wars has happened, you know, from Iraq to Afghanistan. 
But this is a war that actually stuck, you know, kind of uh, galvanized everybody because, and this is unfortunate reality of this, but it's just because it's happening in Europe. So when you see people dying in uh, on, on the streets of, you know, of Kiev or, or Kharkov, these people you can identify with them because they look just like you. And I think that's, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why response was as lethal to Russia as it was. And you know, basically, if you think about Russia basically was excommunicated from modernity. It's a, what's the sanctions that were imposed on Russia are, you know, it's just basically, it's, it's a financial system is going bankrupt overnight. It's been cut off, not just from McDonald's and Cokes and Pepsis. Those things are not as important. Most importantly, it's been cut off from U.S. technology. In, from, you know, US technology able- from U.S. Yes. technology. From U.S. technology. Yes. And this, is, this leads to my question. Can China be a successful replacement meal, if you will? For this, I mean, there is Huawei. There are China. China has become masterful in the last twenty-five years at kind of becoming the manufacturer of of choice for the planet. It does a lot of contract manufacturing for the United States. It has all of the IP for iPhones and various Samsung phones and things that are now prohibited from being shipped to Moscow. It could just as easily be a back channel to to Russia. Well, I think it's going to be most likely China will replace some of that, but not all of it. And also, if United States will see that, let's say, Intel chips are sent to Russia through China, then it was going to start imposing sanctions on the companies that do that. So some of that, though, will be replaced. I'll give an example. For instance, Ericsson and Nokia would not be sending to Russia its telecommunication equipment for 5G. So China has two companies uh, that make this equipment, but now that means... That that equipment may or may not be compatible with the equipment they have there today. The spare parts for the equipment that Russia has right now will not be available. So China will be able to help, but it's a, it's not going to be easy. And that's it's going to be still a very long and painful journey of China kind of stepping in as a technology company. But also realize software-wise, if you're if you're a company, modern company running Oracle or Microsoft software or whatever, that software is not going to be available to you. So it's going to be more difficult for China to replace that. So, are, I mean, China and India still maintain commercial and diplomatic ties. They all, everybody kind of nominally has diplomatic ties with Russia, but aren't so many of these things fungible? Like, let's talk about oil and the Biden administration coming out. It's not like we buy all that much oil, the United States, from Russia to begin with. But what is the difficulty of kind of an arbitrage situation? Suppose they sell it at a discount to China. China puts a different flag on it and sells it back into international markets. It says that's probably the least important impact because you're right. Oil is a fungible commodity. If we don't buy Chinese oil, it means China. You know, and China used to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, for instance. So now instead of buying the oil from Saudi Arabia, China will buy from Russia, and we will just buy more oil from Saudi Arabia. It's. I mean, there are some complications because oil comes at different grades. And you need to have refining capacity for different grades of oil. But at the end of the day, it's that's probably the least important sanction. Well, that's one thing. That's one thing. That's one thing that I, I, I can't understand. It's a game of whack-a-mole, you know, having studied Iranian sanctions. 
There mm-hmm. are things particular in the Middle East, the island of Kish. There are certain free trade zones, smuggling zones. Uh, trade has become by its by itself so fungible that, look, it's not hard to get a brand new model iPhone in Lagos, Nigeria, in a country that doesn't have the newest mm-hmm. model available. But there is a thriving smuggling business. I can't imagine it's that hard for China or for some other borderline rogue nation to get the things that Russia is missing and, and sell it to Russia. No, that's true. But in the meantime, Russia is going to have hyperinflation, right? Because all these things are going to increase the cost of doing business tremendously, right? So when you, like I'll be an example. And so if you used to buy a Apple iPhone from Apple enough, now you have to smuggle it through Turkey or through China, you know, that phone is going to cost three times more. So, you know, and then you, the ruble collapsed. So all these things together, Russia is going to have this incredible inflation. And, you know, and, and uh, ordinary people will suffer, unfortunately. Vitaly, it begs the question, and it has me thinking back to an anecdote you shared on this show several years ago when you were first on. You remember the mid-1980s in the Soviet Union and kind of the Soviet apartment block. And in the basement, I'll never forget this, this mm-hmm. rack of VCRs that people were using to kind of dub Western films and Western TV shows if a bootleg copy of something got out that was unedited. And there was always a way of breaking the official censors. Uh, in this case, what's your impression about the, to the extent that you illustrate that Russians feel an affinity towards Ukrainians? I mean, it's kind of, you talk about fungibility. Are you Russian? Are you Ukrainian? Are you Belarusian? Vitaly, you have all three blood kind of coursing through your veins. Are these guys, are, are Russians just not getting information? You've seen the Kremlin pass laws against disinformation with stiff 15-year fines. But I imagine that in the age of the internet and WhatsApp and everything, it isn't that difficult to see the harrowing images of what is happening in Ukraine right now. Robin, that is such a great question. Um, When the internet came about, I thought it's going to be very difficult for somebody to be brainwashed because now you have information available from all over the world, right? You know, so you don't have to watch just Russian TV. You can watch American TV. You can read newspapers from all over the world. And then I remember in 2014, when uh, Russia went into Ukraine, into Eastern Ukraine, I was shocked to learn that, you know, I was shocked to, I was shocked that Russia would, you know, Russian people would do this. So for one week, I just started watching Russian TV from Moscow and reading and started reading only Russian newspapers, again, from Moscow. And Robin, after doing this for a week, I almost like I, I became so brainwashed. Because the, what you realize, what you, what you have to understand is this. All media in Russia is dominated by the government. So they used to, you know, they, like a long time ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, they used to be independent media. There used to be multiple different TV channels that had different news. Now, either they were bought out by Russian government or they were just closed by Russian government or they just went out of business. So today, Russian government controls all the news. And and yes, you can get news from uh, from you know, from other places. But what happens is this: it's the brainwashing that happens on Russian TV and Russian newspapers papers is so strong that you just don't want to read anything else, or you don't want to watch. But even else. after even after the experience of the Soviet Union, you know, there's that movie. What is it? Goodbye Lenin, or Goodbye Stalin? What the, the where, where somebody comes comes out of a coma and has to deal with uh, the, the the bizarre world of kind of post Soviet Russia. Uh-huh. After you've been bitten once, aren't you twice shy? Aren't you twice skeptical about trusting 
the official press? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Robin, when I was growing up, growing up in Russia in the 1980s, like early 1980s, I thought Stalin was this hero who saved our country during World War II. And then when Perestroika happened, we kind of... When Perestroika, the opening happened under that, Gorbachev. That's right. Yes. That's right. I was shocked to learn that he was he was a monster who killed, in addition to you know twenty million Russians. Just imagine that he killed twenty million Russians. Okay, so he was in my mind there is no difference between him and Hitler now. And so, but now what's happening? A few years ago, they passed Russia passed laws that basically you can go to jail for criticizing the actions of Soviet government during World War II, and therefore you can go to jail for criticizing Stalin. And now there are statues of Stalin being erupted all over Russia. Going so, back up. That's right. So wow. the country, it's not that they looked at the history, learned something from this. They're trying to forget that history. And they're going back to Russia basically over the last two weeks, went back to Stalin's Russia. Let me give you this example. Day after, a few days after the, this war started, Russian government passed a law that basically says two things. First of all, you can't call this war a war. You have to call it special operation. If you call this special operation a war, you can get up to 15 years in jail. You also cannot produce fake news. And by the way, anything that does not agree with the news that comes out of the Russian uh, propaganda channels is fake, is fake news. news. Yeah, so right. basically what happened in the last two weeks any like there were very few independent outlets. There was a two or three independent outlets, and there were some bloggers and stuff. Or they or closed shop, have, or they they left the country. Yeah, yes. Even but by the way, even American uh, British news left the country because they realized the cost is too high. Yes. So Russia is going back to, and this is this is what really worries me. So in Russia, you right now, a lot of people live uh, in the because of the propaganda. They have their own Truman Show. You know, this movie with Jim Carrey where he lived yes, in this yes. dome. And they lived in this dome. So these people, they have their own version of truth that is very different from what you and I think. It's not that they, they right now they're thinking that they're fighting neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Right? They're thinking that if they did not start this war, they would have been attacked by NATO. So it was a preemptive war. So this is, and by the way, when I say this, a very large number of Russian people are zombified like that. And the problem is that the, so therefore Putin is actually more popular now than he was when the war started. Then, then you have people who actually understand what's going on. But the problem is if you go on the street and if you voice your opinion, you can, you go to jail. So mm. people are afraid. So here's what's going to happen. Over time, some of those people who are zombified will understand what's going on, but it will be too late. Because at that point, Russia will be will turn into kind of Stalin Russia, where you're going to have anybody who voices uh, their opinion that goes against the government will become enemy of the people. And, you know, that's why, you know, Stalin had 20 million people in gulags and, and killed. So I think that's what really saddens me about what's going on, you know, not just about Ukrainians dying, which is, I, I cannot tell you how much pain, pain it gives me, but also I feel bad about you know, the country where I came from. It's going back to basically 80 years ago. Full Disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. A shout out to our 
broadcast partners, of course, Virginia Public Radio, WVTF across the Great Commonwealth, WERA up in Arlington, Virginia, and most of D.C. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and of course, KPPQ, Ventura, California. Please get in touch if you would like full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we're talking to Vitaly Katzenelson. He is uh, his day job is value investor, but he's a Russian-born, naturalized U.S. citizen who's heartbroken about what he's witnessed. Kind of the the, the reversion or the, the the retrograde nature of what Moscow has been doing with this campaign in Ukraine. In the four or five minutes I have left with you, Vitaly, I guess the pressure now because Putin, after all, is nuclear armed. And it's not in the conversation to engage him directly with weapons. Is there a possibility for anyone on the Russian street to just hate these sanctions, hate the lack of iPhones, hate the the, the lack of luxuries at Coca-Cola and say, we need to rise up in the streets and rid, rid ourselves of this guy? Or is he going to maybe play the Tiananmen playbook? Yeah, Robin, as a few, as of, uh, from a few days ago, uh, Russian government arrest, arrested already a few thousand people who went on the streets. And they'll keep doing it more and more and more. So I think people are scared because, you know, the consequences of you voicing your displeasure with what's going on is very severe. So I, I think it's very unlikely. But one thing could, that could change this is that you're going to see more and more mothers learning about their sons dying. And that could maybe tip the country over to kind of to rise against Putin, but I would put very low probability on that. Look, the fall of the Soviet Union was a quote-unquote bloodless revolution, they say. I mean, there was that attempted attack in 1991 to wrest back power, but uh, this is kind of a slow burn thing that's happened with Vladimir Putin and the rise of the oligarchy and, as you said, that you know, expropriating power back and getting it in drips and drips and drips, and the next thing you realize is you're living in another dictatorship. It's a kind of a Potemkin democracy. Um, the last time we saw a true Russian revolt was more than 100 years ago. Yeah, in, in uh, 1917, yes. Uh, I think that's right, right now it's, pro- it's probably unlikely. And uh, it's only, you know, the life in Russia over the next, you know, next month or two months will get horrible. It's going to be, you know, unemployment will sky- skyrocket. Banks are already not giving out loans. The uh, prime rate in, in Russia is yeah, you know, basically twenty percent. So the 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 economy is only going to be supported by natural resources, and uh, which is still significant amount of revenue, but it's it's you know it's, it's it's the life is going to get very very difficult. And I like I don't know if the problem is when I talk to my friends who I went to you know school uh, in Russia, these people who are just absolutely normal people, the average people. They th- they basically they told me, well, th- listen, the war already started. We have to win it now. So that is their attitude towards that, and uh, they literally think they are victims of this, and they think they are fighting neo Nazis in Ukraine. That's that's what they're thinking. And this is not just my friends. This is just if you talk to average person on the street, that's what they think. And to the extent that you invoke neo Nazis, I like to bring up the the specter of the real Nazi, the master Nazi himself, uh, Adolf Hitler. I'm haunted by how you called this 2022 invasion and incursion 
Putin's 1936 moment. I want to quote from your, your essay on this. You said, on March 7th, 1936, the German army violated the Treaty of Versailles and entered into the Rhineland. Here's what Hitler later said. The 48 hours after the march into the Rhineland were the most nerve-wracking in my life. If the French had then marched into the Rhineland, we would have had to withdraw with our tails between our legs, for the military resources at our disposal would have been wholly inadequate for even a moderate resistance. Those two days, you write, determine what Germany would do next, build out its army and start World War II. You said that Putin's 1936 moment actually was 2014 and 2015 when Russia invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And you can even go back to 2008 when there was the excursion into Georgia, that this stuff happens gradually and then very suddenly in a kind of earth-shaking moment like Ukraine 2022. You know, Europe, like Europe, United States knew what was going on. But Putin tried to put up a facade that it wasn't that Russian army was in the eastern Ukraine. It was actually soldiers on vacation going to fight to Eastern Europe. And then, you know, of course, you know, when when there were tanks that suddenly showing up in eastern Ukraine, he didn't really have a good explanation for that. But Europe and the United States looked at it and ignored it. And by the way, the irony of what you just read, that was an excerpt from an article I wrote in 2014. So the, that was a... Uh, and what about the, the irony also of 4 a.m.? Just in closing, a, I mean, was yeah. that intentional? Explain that. Yeah, so I, yeah, so the World War II uh, started like, well, the, you know, the, Germany attacked Russia at 4 a.m. on the June, 20, uh, June 22nd, 1941. And the uh, Russian army invaded Ukraine this time around at 4 a.m. as well on uh, February 25th, I guess, would be our you know, Ukrainian time. So, uh, yes, yeah, so it's a, you know, the, 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 uh, the irony actually, it's, it's not even this, that the, the head Nazi of Ukraine is a Jewish man that was elected by 70% of the people. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the irony. The quote, of, on, uh, the quote unquote head Nazi in Volodymyr Zelensky. That's, yes, thank you. Yeah, for clarifying this. Yes, that's, yes, thank you. Yeah. Yes, the, the quote unquote head Nazi, yes. Well, uh, there are so many things I'd like to talk to you about, Vitaly. You know, you and I can riff about life as immigrants, about value investing, about oil prices and the like, but I promise to kind of keep it to what has captured your mind and has devastated you as a person really at the crossroads of, of all three countries. You explained they're Slavs. They're all one. I mean, people, I've met Estonians who say we are not Russians, that that was kind of Stalin imposed himself on us. But the, the people of Belarus and, and Ukraine and, and Russia, you know, up until now, it was kind of unthinkable. And I, I just encourage you to keep writing these essays. Uh, you can follow Vitaly on Twitter. The forthcoming book is Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. Uh, it drops in June. I encourage you to pick it up. Uh, Vitaly, give us your social media particulars. Uh, my Twitter handle was Vitaly, V-I-T-A-L-I-Y, letter K, K. And uh, they can, you can read my articles on contrarianedge.com. Contrarianedge.com. Vitaly, of course, uh, the door's always open. Come back on. Robin, it's my pleasure. You're phenomenal. Thank you. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio, and please do get in touch to carry Full Disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we're discussing the rebalancing of global power centers in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
Now joining me from across the pond at NATO is Natasha Bertrand, who covers national security in the White House for CNN. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm tired, as we all are, but uh, it's been quite a new cycle. And I hear you typing over this too, probably (laughs) to file a story. Share with me, you know, I'm struck by the asymmetry of this. I hear things, Bill Salatan and others are saying that there must be enormous casualty numbers on the Russian front that you're obviously not going to see Russian state media promote, that you're hearing a lot about the Javelin missiles and the defense. But you would think that that and the crushing sanctions and the Russian economy grinding to a halt would be enough to stop Vladimir Putin, but he keeps shelling on in, in Kiev and beyond. Yeah, and this is the big question, is what level of sanctions would the West and uh, you know NATO and the EU and the US have to impose on mm. Russia to actually make a difference? Right. And so far, it does not seem like anything that they have imposed has actually been a deterrent for him. Um, if only, if anything, he has only become, it seems, more emboldened, been using more brutal tactics uh, as the war has dragged on and as he has not achieved his military objectives right away. Um, so the sanctions are becoming tougher, sure, but it does not seem like it is having an impact yet uh, on Putin's calculus. One, I, I wonder when you get kind of game this out, how much Vladimir Putin is worth, what what has been kind of kicked back to him in the oligarchy and the kleptocracy. And what is the idea that for Russian oligarchs and the Russian street, whatever that is, this is going to be so intolerable that they spill out across the former empire and overthrow the government? <laughs> Uh, something like that. <laughs> I think that the objective is to squeeze these oligarchs because they are so influential, right? And that is a theory that has not yet borne out yet. The real decision maker here, the person that has unfortunately been very isolated, we're told by US and Western officials because of COVID over the last two years, uh, is the one really in charge of all of this, is the one doing all of the decision making, and really has not been swayed by even some of his closest advisors and closest confidants throughout the course of this war. You know, the U.S. It tends to believe that this is also a penalizing, uh, you know, way of going about this, that this is a penalty that they can impose on the oligarchs on Russia um, because of their support for Russia. And so therefore, it's not just something that they can do uh, to try to deter, but also show Putin that if they go any further, then they can only ratchet this up any- even more. But I think that from what we've seen over the last three weeks, this war is not gone how Putin thought it would go. Um, and clearly, he has been getting bad advice from the people around him. Um, yet it has not changed uh, his behavior as calculus. Again, it's, it really seems like he's only become more brutal. Natasha, talk to me about the potential pressure events here, I think, in China and Saudi Arabia. You, you had reported that China had expressed some openness, we wrote, to providing military and financial aid to Russia, as a U.S. cable suggests. And prior to that, you even reported that China asked Russia to delay Ukraine invasion until after the Olympics. It kind of reminds me of Sochi and Crimea, that <laughs> there's kind of an order of operations here. You, you, you play like you're an international member of the community, and then you, you go all World War II. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the relationship right now with China is, is just extremely complicated for the U.S. They obviously want to convey to China that there are going to be very serious consequences if China does provide any kind of support to Russia. But at the same time, they understand that Xi Jinping is very close to Putin and that Xi Jinping does not feel like, you know, like China is part of the U.S.-led global order, right? They feel as though they are the new ascendant great power, and therefore, uh, potentially, they are better aligned with Russia. 
And so they kind of, the U.S. had this very long, this seven-hour meeting um, with Jake Sullivan's counterpart, Russian or Chinese counterpart, on Monday in Rome. And it was very intense, we're told, because the U.S. here is trying to convince the Chinese not to provide this military and economic assistance to Russia. But it seems like they're really not getting anywhere. They have seen, according to a State Department memo that was sent out just this week, a willingness by China to actually help the Russians in this conflict. So it, it, is, it is just a very delicate situation. And while China, of course, is reluctant to provide too much assistance to Russia because of how it, they would be penalized by the West in terms of the sanctions, there is still that partnership there. Um, and then, you know, there is evidence, we were told, that China knew about this in advance, that in U.S. intelligence reports suggested that Chinese officials actually requested that Russia not start its invasion until after the uh, Olympics ended. So uh, that really has colored uh, the U.S.'s view of what China is capable of and their foreknowledge of this military operation. And it's uh, they're not optimistic here about the path forward. I think about China also in the potential win-win-lose. I mean, if it sets a precedent for them to annex Taiwan, mm -hmm. which looms kind of in this scenario, and to what extent the United States and the Western powers would intervene, and two— if uh, Putin is squeezed and needs to offload natural gas and oil, there's this nominal boycott from the West. Isn't China in a position, you might be more familiar with this, to kind of take on the fungible commodities, put a different flag on them, buy them at a discount and sell them back into the international market? It's not like they're RFID tagged as, as being Russian oil. Yeah. So I think part of what the U.S. is watching here is, are there going to be any kind of sneaky workarounds whereby you know, China and India too. India is another one to watch, whereby they are now trying to evade the sanctions that are on Russia, right? And even apart from that, whether they will then shore up Russia's oil and gas industry and energy industry in a way that the West is now backing away from. It's a real concern. And it's one that's been asked many times of this administration is, okay, you're imposing all of these sanctions and you're, you know, the EU is now saying that they are not going to invest in any new uh, energy projects in Russia. But at the same time, Russia has other clients, right? Russia has other partners that it can work with here to either get the technology uh, imports that it needs that, that the U.S. has banned or have buyers for its oil. So this is a major problem, and it's why the U.S. has been conducting such intensive diplomacy with these countries to try to get them to say, we stand with the international order here and we don't defend this invasion. However, they really have not gotten to that point yet. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Natasha Bertrand. She covers national security and the White House for CNN. She's joining us from NATO across the Atlantic. What of NATO? Uh, you've seen unbelievable solidarity. I'm struck by all these scenes of uh, mothers showing up with strollers in Poland and helping Ukrainian refugees of these various gestures of Germany suddenly getting armaments religion after so long and realizing that the entire post-World War II order is threatened here and that they have to shore up NATO, which after all was really threatened. You had a lot of jawboning from the Trump White House. What is your impression? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is just a theme that we've encountered over the last three weeks that we've been reporting from NATO, which is that this war that Russia has waged on Ukraine has reinvigorated the NATO alliance in a way beyond Putin's wildest dreams. This is something that has united them more so than they have been, especially on the issue of Russia, in any time over the last, certainly over the last decade. So, you know, in that sense, Putin's 
goal here really backfired because, of course, he did not want NATO to uh, be united. He did not want them to expand further east. Of course, that hasn't happened yet. But clearly, you know, there is a push here for Ukraine to be able to be folded more into the West and more into, uh, you know, security pacts with the West. And, you know, it's consistent. It's been consistent as well. NATO member countries are sending weaponry to Ukraine. NATO as a bloc is not because they want to preserve kind of that plausible deniability and they don't want anyone to say that NATO is, you know, basically fighting this war uh, against Russia on Ukraine's behalf. But in terms of the willingness of NATO countries to show their solidarity with Ukraine, it has been uh, very consistent. And, you know, we see that today on Tuesday when the leaders of the Czech Republic, Poland and Slovenia actually went to Kiev, went to the middle of a war zone. Uh, to, ex- to meet with President Zelensky and to express their solidarity, even though Ukraine is not a NATO member, even though it's not a member of the European Union. So really just sending a strong signal to Putin here that, you know, <laughs> if this was, you know, if your plan was to try to divide Ukraine from the West, then it really backfired. What are the eventualities if he's just content with a Pyrrhic victory of just shelling a bunch of these cities and just being right in, in his conviction that Ukraine was part of Russia all along and that this is a joke. And if he did miscalculate and he didn't realize that the sanctions would be so sweeping and the stock market and the currency would collapse and you wouldn't be able to buy an iPhone or luxury goods in Moscow anymore, isn't that even more dangerous that a cornered man really has nothing to lose at this point, especially (laughs) if he's a billionaire several times over? It's a really great question. And it's, it's one that we've been asking as well to this administration because there is a point, and we're told that this has been a debate inside the White House, where there is a point at which you have to wonder, how far can we go with these penalties before it just becomes counterproductive? And Putin feels that there is no way out, and he just lashes out even more, especially because some people might argue that he has little to lose at this point. I mean, he has basically gone all in with Ukraine. He still has his riches um, the sanctions, he, he's been sanctioned, sure, but there are many experts that say that that won't have much of an impact on him. And, you know, so far, the answer that we've gotten from this administration is, well, we're going to continue to do this. We're going to continue to impose these tough sanctions because what other option do we really have here? I mean, short of the military option, which is not on the table at this point, the economic penalties are, and, and you know, shoring up our defenses are really the only way that we can send a message here that this behavior is unacceptable. So I think there's definitely a risk here uh, that this moves into a new territory, that Putin lashes out and perhaps tries to move further west. Um, This is a particularly acute concern uh, within NATO. They are very worried uh, that either purposefully or even accidentally, Russia could uh, launch some kind of provocation in those eastern flank NATO countries. But Again, they they feel that the sanctions and the economic penalties are really short of those weapons transfers, of course, to Ukraine as far as they can go at this point. Why? I mean, if 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 you've effectively shown your hand at the very outset, if you're the Biden White House saying that we're not going militarily toe to toe with them after all, it's mutually assured destruction. But what if, again, if he has nothing to lose and he approaches Poland or Estonia, I mean, lower hanging fruit in the Baltics, if you've shown your hand at this point and economic sanctions, you know, charred scorched earth is just scorched earth at a certain point well (laughs) if he were to i hate to i hate to make it that depressing but i wonder and i wonder about the lessons of history naturally you must be thinking back to neville chamberlain and the promise from 
Hitler, there is a certain yeah. intoxication, uh, you know, at annexing land. And it was totally. easy enough with Crimea in 2014. And, and uh, you know, Obama didn't press him on, on Syria. That was a vacuum. And I wonder to what extent that has emboldened a person in terms of imperial mindedness. Totally. And there are many analysts and Russia experts and, and people who have studied the kind of mind of Vladimir Putin over many, many years that say that he has been emboldened by the West because he mm. was just not, I mean, remember that infamous response from President Obama the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back, you know, when, when he was facing off against Mitt Romney, who said that Russia is the biggest geopolitical threat uh, that the United States and the West face. I mean, this is a power that subsequent administrations have been trying to contain, but at the same time, underestimating just how far Putin was willing to go. This administration, however, I will say, was very out front with the intelligence on this potential Russian operation in Ukraine, saying way back in November that this it was a possibility that they were going to invade long before even certain members of NATO uh, were willing to actually uh, believe them. And so that kind of being out front on this intel, sharing it and, and kind of trying to get ahead of the Russian narrative on this was pretty smart. Um, and it allowed the world to kind of be prepared for the possibility that Putin might do this. But but look, I mean, with regard to the idea that he might go further west here and might actually, you know, not be bluffing. And in terms of, you know, many analysts actually believe that he does not want to stop at Ukraine. Many people in NATO believe that. That would really trigger a catastrophic, potentially catastrophic response here, because that would trigger Article 5 consultations if it was against a NATO country that he targeted. And Article 5, of course, is if one country attacks, then the whole NATO alliance has to come to that country's defense. Um, a little bit less clear what would happen. Even if he's even if he's brandishing even if he's brandishing nuclear warheads. Right. And this is the big question, and we have not received an answer to it is if this was something where NATO essentially had to go up against Russia, like all of these nuclear powers against one another, would you be willing to fight that conflict? And the response that we get is, well, you know, we would have to discuss it. We would have to discuss how an attack on this country would then draw in the broader alliance. They just don't know. And of course, they are very reluctant to say that they, it would trigger any military action because they want to de-escalate, right? And so I think it's just they don't want to entertain hypotheticals at this point. It's very unclear how they would respond. But if it did, if it, if it were a purposeful attack by Russia on a NATO country, I think that we would see a very strong response from, from that alliance. Natasha, in closing, I have a loaded question for you to ponder. What does the United Nations do? The United... Or what does it do at this point? What is it good for at this point if it's effectively limited in terms of uh, veto, member veto? It kind of has not exactly shown its mettle during this crisis. Well, they've been pressured to kick Russia out, right? I mean, especially given that Russia is a member of the UN Security Council, that they were actually the president of the UN Security Council uh, last month. There are a lot of questions about whether it's appropriate for Russia to be a member of that body. And um, there are many people that would say that they need to be because of exactly this kind of situation, that because of diplomacy, how necessary it is in a moment of conflict and war, then that channel needs to be open and remain open. But certainly there are many questions about whether they belong in that body. And of course, we've seen Russia kicked out of many international bodies before because of their aggression towards Crimea and Ukraine. Natasha Bertrand covers national security in the White House for CNN. It's a joy to finally have you on, Natasha. Please, please, hopefully in calmer times, come back on. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to friends and family. 
Hello to our broadcast listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, WERA Radio Arlington, WPVM and KPPQ. Please message me to run full disclosure on your air. I am Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank you.